Let's open our Bibles to the book of Proverbs. This is a new book, and what I'm going to do is something a little bit different and have an introduction to the book. Let's read the first seven verses, and then we'll go back. We'll begin and end with reading Proverbs 1, 1 to 7. But then I want to introduce you and do a sort of a character study, an analysis, if you will, on David's son Solomon. So we're going to look at his life what made him so unique. Let's begin in verse 1, a brand new book, Proverbs. Now the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion, A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. And to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. We'll begin there and end there. Um, I want you to turn back to 1 Kings chapter 3. A little bit of background is uh, David is giving instructions to his son in chapter 2. David had served as king for 40 years. We read in chapter 2, verse 11, that David reigned over Israel for 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron, and in Jerusalem he reigned for 33 years. You put them both together, you have 40. Saul reigned for 40, David reigned for 40, Solomon reigned for 40, and they're unique because it was one government, not divided, and it's only because of Solomon's end of his life that we have a divided kingdom after Solomon. We have Rehoboam in the south, and we have Jeroboam heading up the ten tribes in the north, and these would come as a form of judgment, and it's going to fall on the shoulders of Solomon. But in way of introduction, we read verse 12. Then Solomon sat on the throne of his father, David, and his kingdom was firmly established. As we get into this tonight, we're talking about a real-life Camelot. Without doubt, the most glorious kingdom that has ever been on this planet. It's all because of um, the wisdom of Solomon, the magnitude of his wisdom. His wealth is beyond being able to measure. If you were an Israeli under David, you did no physical labor. That was left to the men that David had conquered. The Philistines, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, they were all brought in a subjection by David. And by the time Solomon comes along, he's able to build the temple. It took him seven years. Built his own house. That took 13 years. And um, we're just going to go through and lay out how well he started, but sadly, how poorly he finished up, and what caused the wisest man in the world to have his heart changed and actually begin to serve other, other gods. You just want to say, say it ain't so, Saul. Just say it ain't so. Um, let's begin by looking at uh, chapter 3 and verse 3. Solomon is on the throne. David left him with some marching orders to take care of a couple people, as he's laying on his deathbed, and Solomon does so, if you want to 
find out who they are, just read chapter, all of the rest of chapter two. By the time we get to chapter three, we find that Solomon loved the Lord in verse three, chapter three, and he walked in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. And now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the uh, great high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. Just let that settle in. Because as we get into the numbers here, Solomon does everything to to an extreme. And here, we're going to find what's unique about Solomon is that the Lord actually appears to this guy two times. The first one here is in verse 5. It says, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, go ahead and ask, what do you want? And I'll give it to you. And, um, I mean, just stop and <laughs> let that one settle in. Um, a lot of people would want the lottery, I'm sure, or some material thing. And Solomon said, well, you've shown such great mercy to my father David because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and an upright heart. And you have continued this great kindness for him. And you've given him a son to sit on his throne even to this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. But I'm just a little child. I don't know how to go out, and I don't know how to come in. Another prophet said that he felt like a child unable to um, do the Lord's work. He just saw his own inadequacies. Moses, the same thing, you know, he He says, don't choose me, I'm slow of speech. Aaron over here, he's a good speaker, why don't you pick him? And Solomon is young. Uh, To his credit, he's aware of his inabilities. He says, the idea of coming in and going out, it's a matter of speaking. If you're going to be the king, then you should have that, that much down. And he says, and your servant, verse 8, is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to counter number. Therefore, because all that's true, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked for this thing. Now, the Lord goes on to say, because you didn't ask for long life, didn't ask for riches for yourself. You didn't ask for the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding and you wanted to discern justice. Behold, I've done according to your words, and I've given you a wise and understanding heart. Now, the next part I have underlined. Very, very important for the rest of our study. And our study as we continue into the book of Proverbs. So that there has not been anyone like before you nor shall there arise anyone after you. I take this very literally in that what we're reading here is that there's never been anybody on this planet except the Lord Jesus Christ who has had more wisdom, more discernment, more discretion than Solomon before or after. And just fill in the blank from Einstein to Newton to whoever comes to your mind Uh, Socrates, Plato, go across the gamut. 
And the Bible is telling us there's nobody before him or after him that is going to have more wisdom than Solomon. Now, this is important. Solomon, uh, there's about 800 Proverbs that we're going to read in the Proverbs. But he actually, we're going to read, if you look at chapter 4, verse 32, it says that he spoke 3,000 Proverbs and his songs were 1,005. We have 800 of them in the book of Proverbs, but he wrote 3,000. We only have one song that we're aware of. We call it the Song of Solomon. And we'll be studying that along with the book that he wrote, the book of Ecclesiastes. And um, here, the Lord is just saying, I've given you the wisdom, and now he gives him this challenge. He says, you're going to keep it if you walk in my ways, keep my statutes and commandments as your father David. Then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and indeed it was a dream, and he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and he offered up burnt offerings and uh, made a feast for all of his servants. Now, his first test to demonstrate, indeed, that uh, the Lord has given him wisdom is he's got to sit as judge and uh, uh, come up with answers to problems in in everyday life. And everybody's heard the story. I'm not going to read it all. But two women, each had a child. And in the night, one of them rolled over on their child and died. The child died. The mother, realizing that her child was dead, goes and takes the other baby and calls it hers. So now they're both claiming that it's their child, and the matter is brought before Solomon. And um, they both lay out their story, and one says um, she rolled on her kid in the middle of the night, and she came and stole mine, and the other one says, no, that's not true. It's just the other way around. Mine, mine was with me, and she came and took it. And it was Solomon's, um, as king, it was his job to decide who would get the child. And so he's, he's giving the test. And his answer to this predicament, to find out who's, who's really the mother, is in verse 24. And he says, just bring me in a sword. And cut the thing in two, give half to this one, and give that half one to the other one. I'm sure people are saying, this guy doesn't have wisdom, he's crazy to come up with, with such a solution. Doesn't he have a heart at all? And verse 26, the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son, as any natural mother would. See, what he's doing here is he's flushing her out. He wants to see what's in this person's heart. He wants to see what's in that person's heart. And so by making such a radical statement, the natural mother would do anything to defend, of course, her child. And as a result, um, the real mother says, Lord, give the living child and by no means kill him. But the other one said, I don't really care. Go ahead and cut him up. And the, the king answered and said, give the first woman the living child and by no means Kill him. She's the mother. And it says in verse 28, all Israel heard of the judgment which the king rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. And from that point on was a mark. Who is this guy? And uh, what a radical thing to do to flesh out the real mother. Uh, Jesus did the same thing with the woman at the well. 
it took a conversation going back and forth four times before he got her to open up. She was a Samaritan. He was a Jew. And she told him straight out, look, we don't like each other. That's common knowledge, so what's up with that? And he says, well, you know, I just want to drink of water. Um, this water here you drink, you'll thirst again, but I have water if I give it to you. You'll never thirst again. Well, now the dialogue has started. Now they're having a conversation. And he's drawing her out. He's flushing her out. And uh, she says, give me some of that water so that I don't have to come here every day and, and, and draw. And she says, fine, no problem. Go call your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. And then Jesus said to the woman at the well, well I suppose you're telling me the truth. Let's see, you've been married five times and you're living with this guy now, so I guess you're telling me the truth. And she said, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And um, he is drawing her out. You see, there, there can be no real conversion without conviction. A person has to be convicted of their sin and what the Lord was pointing out. You're living in sin right now. And he's drawing that out of her. And then um, everything that was deep down inside, all of a sudden it came bubbling out. And she wanted to know. She says, I'm a Samaritan. And us Samaritans say that we worship on Mount Gerizim, but you're a Jew and you say in the temple is the place to worship. Which is it? But my point is, Jesus is, of course, God in the flesh, omnipotent, omniscient, meaning all-knowing. And he knew this woman. He knew every one of those five guys, and he knew the guy she was living with at the time. And all he was doing with wisdom is the same thing that Solomon is doing right here. He's flushing her out. And um, after he put this little litmus test out there, the real mother's heart yearned, and that's what he was looking for. And the one who could have cared less, he knew that wasn't the one. And everybody perceived it, and they go, holy smokes, we got got a king. Don't you wish we had one today? Well, here's the good news. We got one who's coming. I think he's coming soon. And when he comes and establishes his kingdom, he's going to rule. And uh, you won't be coming to Calvary Chapel on Wednesday night for the Bible studies anymore. But you're going to be able to sit and go to Jerusalem every single year and uh, hear the Lord himself. It says for the countless ages to come, he's going to be revealing to us his mercy and his grace for ages to come. So in chapter 4, we, we read after this just that, that he not only wrote 3,000 Proverbs and 1,005 songs, but verse 33 says he also spoke of trees from the cedar trees of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. And he spoke of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and a fish, a man of all nations, and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom, they came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So now we have the kings of the earth. There's peace all the way throughout the land of uh, Israel. And um, now he begins to put his wisdom into practice. Let's turn to, uh, I'm going to skip ahead. We're going to have, David had laid aside, he wanted to, in 
in chapter 5, one, he, he wanted to build a temple. And the Lord says, David, you have too much blood on your hand. But I tell you what, your son Solomon, he will build the temple. But David began to put aside the resources so that when he came to the throne, he started the building project of the temple. In chapter 6, it says it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign. So he's been on the throne for four years. On the, over um, Israel, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So he was four years in. It took seven years for the temple to be completed. And uh, all of chapter seven is some of the dimensions, the layout, um, the uh, instruction for the Ark of the Covenant, the cherubim, the mercy seat. And in chapter seven, we have Solomon. It took seven years for Solomon to build the temple, but we read in chapter seven, it took 13 years for him to build his own house, almost twice as long. And in it, it goes into detail of um, um, the cost and basically, I'm not going to go through it because it's a very lengthy description of how he um, builds his own house. Chapter 9, the temple is now built and we have the Ark of the Covenant coming back and it's going to take now its place in the temple some after some 484 plus 70 years do the math later the temple's built and they're ready to put the ark of the covenant behind the curtain where the holy of holies is and when that happens it says in verse 9 um that they brought it in, the Ark of the Covenant, there was nothing in the Ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel. Then they came out of the land of Egypt. Um, Something happened to Aaron's rod that budded and also the pot of manna. By this time, it appears that only the tablets of stone are there. Now, as soon as they place it there, verse 10, It says, it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So this is gonna last for another 410 years. And what we have in chapter eight is basically a sermon. It's Solomon dedication speech, if you will, Um, dedicating the temple, beginning with verse 22 is Solomon's prayer that we're not going to get into that he prays. Uh, But it sort of winds up at the end of chapter 8 after the dedication that they have this great feast that lasted for 14 days. And after 14 days of feasting, Uh, Solomon sends everybody home on verse 66. On the eighth day, he sent the people away. They They blessed the king and they went to their tents. They were joyful, glad of heart um, for all the Lord's goodness, all he had done for his servant David and for his people. So it's a real crossroads 
in the history of Israel. I mean, here's the dedication of Solomon's temple. And of course, it's going to remain there until the time of Daniel. The whole book of Jeremiah is because they got away from the Lord, that the Lord would take them into captivity for 70 years. But one of the consequences was this beautiful temple that was uh, constructed under Solomon's leadership is uh, burned to the ground. And so we have chapter 9. And in chapter 9, I just want to read the first nine verses here. And it came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all of Solomon's desire, which he wanted to do, that notice now the second time. It says, the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. Now, later on at the end of his life, this is going to be important when we finish sort of this autobiography of Solomon. One of the things that the Lord's going to pull out and uh, speak to Solomon about is Solomon, listen, I personally appeared to you two times. It's like the angel that appeared to Gideon and told him, Gideon, you're God's man. He says, not me, I'm not God's man. And um, the angel pretty much said to him, you know, and so did, so did Daniel. He says, listen, I stand in the presence of a holy living God. Who do you think you're talking to? In other words, you think I'm lying? I stand in the presence of God. He sent me. He says, okay, what does he want me to do? And um, later on, we're going to see one of the indictments that the Lord's going to bring against Solomon. He says, I appeared to you twice, and you still went on and did what you did. So when Solomon, after he had appeared to him a second time, the Lord said, okay, Solomon, I have heard your prayer. I heard your first prayer, too. He asked for wisdom. And your supplication that you have made before me, I have sanctified this house which you have built to put my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Now, if you will walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness, to do according to all that I have commanded you, And if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised David your father, and you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, Then I'm going to cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and this house which I have sanctified for my name I will cast out from my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among the people. You ever heard the terminology, the wandering Jews? That's where it comes from. They became a byword. This is exactly what happened. The temple was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar, and they were in captivity for 70 years. Daniel was there the whole length of the of that time. And he says, And this house will be exalted. Yet everyone who passes by will be astonished, and they will hiss and say, Why has the Lord done this uh, to his house? Now, this is an interesting question. Because Jesus would prophesy about the temple in his time that he said, You see the temple here, guys? 
He says the time's going to come when your enemies are going to build an embankment all the way around it. And they'll encircle you. And they're going to destroy Jerusalem and this temple. But then he tells the reason why. He says because you did not know the time of your coming. Now that's important implying that they were supposed to know the time of the Lord's coming. And as a result, 70 AD, exactly 32 years after Jesus made that statement, 32 years later, or is it 38? It's 38 or 32. Um, in 70 AD, that's exactly what, what happened um, by Titus and the 10th Roman Legion as they destroyed Jerusalem. And they have been out of the land. My T-shirt that I wore today was just said Israel established 1948. It had an Israeli flag on it. Established 1948. And... Um, I like wearing it because it provokes people's interest and curiosity. And um, matter of fact, uh, I better, I'm getting sidetracked. I've got to stay in my notes. Stay where you're at, Dwight. Don't get sidetracked. But having said that, that's when they came back again. Gang, the, the, the stage is set. And uh, for the Lord to fulfill, there's nothing that has to happen now that they're back and blossoming like the Bible says they would for the rapture to take place. And you got the news bites tonight. We had to add extra news bites because information is coming in uh, on a daily basis. So we had the news bites already laid out for tonight, but we had to add some more because of current events and things that are happening exponentially. So the Lord said you would know it would be like a woman having a baby. Um, The closer it gets, the more intense the labor pains are. And um, we are, as it says in First uh, Thessalonians 5, we're, we're not children of the night. We're children of the day. We're supposed to have a bead on what's going on. And we of all people should have wisdom and be able to explain uh, why Israel is back, why it's significant, why it's important to um, be pressing on, persevering. And the only thing that's going to give you wisdom, two things, being in this book on a daily basis, do I hear amen somewhere? And being born again and filled with God's Holy Spirit. You need, and that brings about the wisdom. You've got to be in the book because that will give you the wisdom that's needed so you can know what to look for. All right. So, verse 7, uh, they did become a, by, a byword. Verse 8, and this house will be exalted, and everyone will pass by. Oh, we read that. Why has the Lord done this? Then they will answer because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt. They embraced other gods, worshipped them, served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all all this calamity upon them. He basically pulled the rug out from underneath of Israel. Why? Get their attention. Put Put them in a corner for 70 years. Let them think about it. What they did. And after that 70 year period of time when you read Daniel 9 the first 19 verses, it's just a beautiful prayer of repentance. Lord, everything you said would happen, happened. And now here we are. And we need to say we're sorry. We need to admit that we worshiped and served these other gods. You said you would do this back here in First Kings, that if we went away from you, that this is what you would do. People would walk by and see the temple destroyed. Why did God do this? Answer, because they went and served and worshiped other gods. All right, let's go to chapter 10. 
And um, the stuff that Solomon began to do, the end of chapter 9, he's, uh, building, he's building ships. And um, his labor force that he is, is raising up, like I said earlier, um, verse 22 of 9, the children of Israel, Solomon's made no forced labor. Now, just think about this. If you were an Israeli, you weren't on the work projects because they were men of war and servants, his officers, captains, commanders of his chariots and his cavalry, who did the work were their ancient enemies back in verse 20, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, <laughs> the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Termites, all up to the Mites, who are not of the children of Israel. They were the labor force. So David put things in order, and now these became the workforce, but if you were an Israeli, basically you were an overseer. Um, he had 600 guys that just had oversight positions, First, I, uh, I'm sorry, 550, who just ruled over the people. I mean, these were the foremen. And these, he had 550 foremen who oversaw the building of cities, uh, Jerusalem itself, and... Um, um, his chariot cities that, that's talked about here. And um, down in verse 26, it says he built a fleet of ships um, down by the Red Sea uh, in the land of Edom. That's by Elat. And um, they weren't sailors in Israel, so they, they got a harem who sent his servants with the fleet, seamen who knew the sea work, uh, to be servants of Solomon. And it says in verse 28 that they went to Orpha and acquired 420 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. Now, the gold that is accumulated in Solomon's lifetime, we read, we're going to read in verse 14, the weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. How long was he uh, king? 40 years. So the only other place, interesting enough, that you find 666 is where? Revelation 13, Mark of the Beast. Cashless society is already in place. We talked about this last week with Denmark. And um, it's the leading news tonight. We're, We're on the fast track for a cashless society. And gang, that is a signpost. That is a sign that's saying, get ready, behold, the bridegroom's coming. And if we see these things happening ahead of time, how late is it? And so when we see current events, we should point them out and say, this is significant. This is, a, this is important. This is one of those things where look up because your redemption's drawing nigh. When we see stuff like that happening. Or Rick Warren sitting down with the Pope, or Bono, or something like that. These are all signposts that are telling us to to keep your antennas up because the coming of the Lord is just that. He's coming. Well, there was a gal named the Queen of Sheba, and she's been hearing rumors. And she heard of the fame of Solomon. Everybody in the world heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name, and she is going to check this guy out to test him with hard questions. So she comes to uh, Jerusalem with a very great... Uh, entourage. I sort of see Elizabeth Taylor right now uh, coming as Cleopatra to see uh, Anthony. 
and the entourage, for those of you who remember the movie of how she came in with the opulence and splendor uh, that only Elizabeth Taylor could pull off, uh, showing that she was uh, the queen of Egypt and she was making an impression. Well, so was the queen of Sheba with camels and spices, very much gold, precious stones. She came to Solomon. She spoke with him about all that was in her heart. She's going to test this guy out, see if he's a real deal or not. And Solomon answered all of her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his tables, uh, the setting of his servants, remember what his prayer was? How do I I come in, Lord, and how do I go out? I don't don't know how to do that. You're going to have to show me. So what do we read here? Queen of Sheba comes and checks it out, and she's watching. She's watching how the king sits at his table. She's watching as how the servants come in and how they go out. And the cup bears and the entryway, but what she went to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. So another way of saying, he took my breath away. And Solomon really did. To say he was a ladies' man is going to be an understatement. And his ability to impress the gals, 700 wives, 300 concubines, <laughs> talk about indulgence. Then she said in verse 6, It's true what I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and I saw with my own eyes, and indeed only the half was told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceeds the fame of which I have heard. Why do I want to do a character study before we start the book of Proverbs? To give you some idea Uh, that this is just 800 of the 3,000 that he wrote, but there's so much more to the man that unless we go back and maybe have an introduction to the book itself, we'll have a greater appreciation of uh, the book of Proverbs. She says, happy are your, your men and happy are those, your servants who stand continually before you, hear your wisdom. And she uh, praises the Lord. And then he sends her home. Um, with anything she wants. He basically says, what do you want? It's yours. Go ahead. Think of anything that you want, and I'll give it to you, and you can take it home with you. Uh, That's verse 13. And he gave the queen of Sheba anything she desired. Whatever she asked, besides what Solomon had given her according to the royal bounty, so she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. And then we read about his wealth and And I have to read this. It's just so over the top. What did he do with 666 talents of the the gold of Orpha, we're told, is exceptionally fine gold. Verse 15, besides that, from the traveling merchants and from the traders that came from the kings of Arabia and the governors of other countries, King Solomon made 200 large hammered gold 600 shekels of gold went into each one, um, shields. And he made 300 shields of hammered gold. Three minuses of gold went into each shield. And a king just put them up in his house, sort of for decorations, out his, his summer home out in the forest. And he had there. And then, that's, then he had another place that was just for judgment. 
And we pick that up in verse 18. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory, pure ivory, and then he overlaid that with pure gold. But you had to go up these six steps to get to the throne. At the top of the throne and around the back, there were armrests on either side of the place of the seat. And he had two lions stood beside the arm set. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps. So you're going up to the throne, and you got six steps. And every time you take a step up, you got a lion on this side and a lion on that side. And uh, you have this golden, solid golden crown that's made out of ivory. And uh, that's where he conducted his business. Then he had this fleet. Um, Once, in verse 22, it says, Once every three years, the merchant ships would bring gold, silver, ivory, apes, monkeys. I mean, he uh, he had a place like no other place that's ever existed. King Solomon's surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. I don't think there's ever been a place like it. I talked about Dubai about a month ago. I talked about the opulence, the only seven-star hotel, largest building in the world, uh, Tiger Woods Golf Course, biggest shopping mall uh, in the world, and so on and so forth. But Dubai has nothing on this. We're we're talking a lot of wealth in, in Dubai, and it probably is the Babylon in Revelation 18, but there, there's nothing. They came, they came up with Camelot for a fictional story of you know the perfect king and the perfect environment. But it says that uh, Solomon here made um, um, silver as common as stones in, in Jerusalem, the wealth that people had. So this, was, this went on year after year, and they prospered more and more. Now, beginning with the end of chapter 10 and 11, we get to see where Solomon begins to get himself in trouble. He was told early on to do, not to do two things. Number one, don't multiply wives for yourself. Number two, don't multiply horses. The wives will turn your heart away from me and the horses will give you a false sense of security that you actually have a military might and you don't have squat if you don't have me behind it. Somebody want to say amen to that? You just said amen to squat and I've got something on you now. <laughs> just making sure you're still listening. All right, so when, when you see in our area today, we, we see some of the successful people in our community, um, are car dealers. They have new ones, and they have used ones. You can buy either or. You can lease them, or you can pay down. You can buy it one cash payment, or you can make payments. Either way, they become very, very wealthy. Solomon was the car dealer in the world in his time. We read, and um, pick it up, verse 26, Solomon gathered chariots. Now, this, these would have been the war machine, the tanks of his day. And horsemen, 1,400 chariots, 20,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in his chariot cities, which the king was in Jerusalem. Now, I could stop here for the next hour and just talk about Megiddo. Megiddo was one of these places. It was right at the 
the, the crossroads of the Middle East. It was a connecting road down into Africa that went up into Asia. And you had to go buy Megiddo. So what he would do is he would buy these horses and then he would um, import them. It says in verse 28, imported from Egypt and Kev, the king's merchants, and brought them to Kiva at the current price. Well, then he just added to it and he was sort of the middleman. And he made a profit either way. Buying or selling, he, was, he made a profit. Verse 27, Solomon made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedar, which would have been, if you've ever been to Israel, you know that um, the cedars of Lebanon, there's mostly rock in, in, in Israel. But the, the, the wealth of Lebanon, of course, are the cedars of Lebanon. And the sycamores, which are in the lowland. Verse 29, the chariots that were imported from Egypt cost 600 shekels of silver and a horse 150, and thus through their agents, see the dealership going on here, trading? They exported them to all the kings of the Hivites and the kings of the Syria. He's a middleman. And even as wealthy as he is, now he crossed the line. The Lord said he'd bless him. And he was doing fine until he did the one thing that David did, let me give you the comparison. David's great failure was not his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. Something worse than having premeditated murder with Uriah. There was something worse that caused 70,000 people to die for nothing. And uh, before David died, he gave an order that he wanted to know how many fighting men he had in Israel. His commander got in an argument about him. He said, why are you doing that, David? That's dumb. Don't do that. And they had an argument about it. The Bible says that David won the argument. And so he had to go out and take a census. He came back. He says, you got this many thousand in this tribe. You got this many thousand in this tribe. When he gave the complete consensus and he got the number that he had, um, David heard it. And all of a sudden, <laughs> dart to the heart. He felt convicted. Well, why would David be convicted? Because what he had preached his whole life in the Proverbs, or in the, in, the, in the Psalms, the Lord is my rock. He is my strength. He's my strong tower. And what does he do at the very end? He wants to know how many fighting guys he's got. For what purpose? In case we have to go to war. And his head is in the numbers of people rather than doing everything that I always told people to do. Trust in the Lord. Let him, let him fight it out. And then David failed miserably. Well, you say, that doesn't sound like too much of a serious sin. Oh, yeah? The Lord comes to him and says, I'll give you one of three choices, David. Choice number one, um, you can run from your enemies for, I can't remember, an extended period of time. Um, I can bring a plague on. And um, he gave another option that I don't remember. And I, his answer was, Lord, you choose. I just, I'm at your mercy. So the Lord allowed, the, the angel of the Lord actually appears showing how the plague was actually accomplished. And David actually sees the angel of the Lord sword drawn over Jerusalem getting ready to take it out. And David says, it's not their fault, it's my fault. Don't do this to the sheep. And the Lord said, okay, stay the hand. 
What's your point, Dwight? Well, David's greatest sin was that 70,000 innocent people died because he put his faith in the number and the strength of his men. Solomon is doing the very same thing right here. The wisest man who ever lived, he should have been listening to the Lord. And when it got into the car business trading, he should have stayed away from it. So you want to say amen to that? He got sucked into it. It's interesting that when you read about Lucifer and his fall, the reason for his fall, it says, was because of the exceeding busyness of his trading. And you go, what in the world does that mean? And you know what I say to that? I have absolutely no idea. (laughs) What does that mean? You're the head angel, cherubim in heaven, and somehow you get caught up in trading to an excess, and because of it, it led to his pride that led to his fall. And that's exactly what's happening here with Solomon. And that's why the Lord warned him. The other thing he warned him against is there's one commandment, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might. And he knew that. And the reason that he did not want wives being multiplied is that he was afraid that they would be able to twist his arm and because of his love for his wives that they would try to pull a Jezebel. That's what Ahab, that's what happened to Ahab. He married Jezebel. Um, and when she came in, she brought in Baal worship into Israel and brought uh, the great, it, it was leaven. It leavened the country out. So verses 26 through 29, we have this mistake of the multiplying of the horses. When we go to Megiddo, this was one of his cities that he built. The walls of the city are still there that Solomon built. The stables where he had these chariot horses and the horses, um, this was a chariot city. As a matter of fact, it was one of the major ones. But there's at least 10 other ones that Solomon had built, and they were for the, the purpose of, um, of uh, chariot cities. And that's what they're called in verse 26, chariot cities, plural. And that brings us to um, the last thing we'll look at in chapter 11, the multiplication of the foreign wives. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, the Sidonians, the Hittites, and from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you, for surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. The Lord knew that. And so he's telling them straight up, don't do it. But Solomon clung to these in love. And he had, (laughs) this is mind-boggling, 700 wives um, and princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives, I have this underline, turned away his heart. So now the two things that the Lord warned him against, he falls into Satan's trap. And Solomon went, and this is, you read this and you say, just just say it ain't so. How could this happen to the wisest man who ever lived? Solomon went after the Ashtaroths, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. 
Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not fully follow the Lord, as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill east of Jerusalem. The hill east of Jerusalem, what is that? That's the Mount of Olives. And for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammon, this is where they offered their children to Moloch. And I don't, I'm not even going to get into the graphics on how brutal of a painful death this was. It would be the equivalent of um, dismembering the baby in the womb today. Let's just put it that way. That much of an abomination. And he did likewise with all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their God. And so we find that the Lord has had enough with that. And now the Lord is angry with Solomon. Verse 9, because he had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him, what? Twice. You see, the Lord makes an issue out of it here. He said, I've appeared twice to you, Solomon. Jesus was going to, um, talking about miracles, he says, blessed are those who haven't seen uh, and still believe. In other words, if you've seen a miracle or you've seen the hand of the Lord, what does it say? To whom much is given, much is required, right? So let's say you've had, um, we were just talking about um, a book that came out some famous musicians in the back room. It just came out, uh, I just saw it for the first time today. And uh, Richie's in there, Richie Ferre. And um, he wrote his own autobiography called Picking Up the Pieces. But Richie's gonna be held accountable for a lot because the Lord did appear to him in a hotel room down down in uh, uh, Florida. And as part of his, he was at the bottom when it happened. But the fact that it happened, <laughs> you got to have him tell the story. You know, what do you do when you have the Lord appear to you? Well, to who much is given, much is required. Well, he, just so you know, he's pastoring Calvary Chapel of a Broom, Broomfield in, in Colorado to this day. And but my point being here, he's saying it happened to you twice, Solomon, and you you saw me, you heard me in dreams and visions. Verse 10, and had commanded him concerning the things that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my commandments, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servants. Remember the first time I appeared to Solomon? I warned you about this. So as long as you walked in the ways of your father David, no problemo. There'll be a king on the throne every generation, but... If you worship other gods, then I'm taking it away from you. But then the Lord says this, uh, and he's thinking about the father now, David. He says, nevertheless, Solomon, I'm not going to do it in your day, but I'm doing it for the sake of your father, David. I will not tear it out of your hands, the hands of your son. I will tear it out of the hands of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom but I'm going to give you one tribe uh, to your son for the sake of my servant David. So there was Judah and Benjamin in the south, and then they had Jeroboam in the rebellion 
who took the 10 northern tribes. And then we have uh, uh, really the, the chastisement of the Lord, and we have, go to verse 41 and 42 of this chapter, we have the end of Solomon's life. It says, now the rest of the acts of Solomon, all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the books of the acts of Solomon? Well, that's a book we don't have, but it's referred to here. And the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem was 40 years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers. He was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Now, let's go back to, um, that's enough of an introduction. Let's go to the book of Proverbs and look again at the first seven verses. And I'll comment on them. Now that we got a picture of the man, there's about 800 in in these 31 chapters here. But remember, there was 3,000 that are all, all, all totaled. I'm saying that he's probably writing this to his son. And um, let's pick it up where it says, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of King David of Israel. The purpose of, of the book that we're about to enter into is to know wisdom and instruction and to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. Okay, and these first couple of verses, what we have here is basically to impart moral discernment, to know what's true, what's false, what's right, what's wrong. Um, also, it's a two-folder, it's, it's also to uh, develop moral, more, I should say, mental clarity and perception. He had to be very perceptive as he's watching these two gals. He's watching their body language, and he wants to see the mother's heart come out. Which one is it? Is it going to be this one over here? Is it going to be this one over here? Watching and waiting, saying, okay, she's the one. That takes discretion, it takes mental clarity, and it takes perception. And he simply has discernment. If it's one thing lacking in the church today, it's discernment. And um, a lack of clarity in, in, in clear thinking. Wisdom is something unfortunate it's lacking. Um, each of these complement the other. Wisdom means skill, basically. And um, wisdom also means discipline. And you put, put these two together, they complement each other. All right, verse four. To give prudence to the simple. Um, I think my friend Malcolm Wilde, the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Merritt Island, him and Elwin were part of a group called Fool's Wisdom. And um, I think they stole it from here. To, to give prudence to the simple. Uh, and to the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning. So there are those who will hear God's word, they'll take it to heart, and they'll be all the wiser and more stable as a result. And a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. To understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles, and here's a key verse, and this is all the farther we're going tonight. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom 
and instruction. Two New Testament verses because I want, if the volume of the book is about Jesus and the book of Proverbs is about wisdom, just two places in the New Testament I'm going to have you turn to. The first one is, and we'll close with this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. So even we ask the question, where is Jesus in the book of, of the Proverbs? And we'll talk more about this on Sunday. What's interesting to me, whenever Solomon is referred to in the New Testament, it's not always in the affirmative. It's not always in the positive. It's sort of a, a slanting slam, if you will. Even Solomon in all of his glory isn't arrayed like one of these. And sort of a backhanded slam against Solomon in all of his glory. Well, we just read all of his glory. But he says, nothing compared to one of my little flowers, the lilies of the field. In verse 30 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, it says, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus went around and he talked. And he, and he taught the multitudes. And they hung on every word. It says the common person heard him gladly. The only people who didn't like him were the self-righteous Pharisees and the hypocrites. But the average Joe, they couldn't get enough. They'd come by the thousands to hear him. Let's go to Colossians for our last verse tonight. Colossians 2. Oh, let's read the first three verses. For I want you to know what great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for as many who have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of full assurance and understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and Christ. Notice verse three, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So here... And we have a, a book that's dedicated to wisdom, perception, discernment, understanding riddles and enigmas. Paul, in talking to the church when they had a, a problem, wanted to take it to worldly people for counsel and advice, he, he rebuked them and says, how dare you? And he says, I want you to pick out the youngest guy that's born again and has the spirit of God in him and let him figure it out. He'll give you a better, a better answer and more wisdom than anybody who's not born again. Amen? Let's call it a nightstand. And we um, took our first step into the book of Proverbs. Lord, we thank you for, we thank you for Solomon, Lord, on how to do it and how not to do it. And uh, may we learn, Father, from their mistakes, I would say. And yet we see, Lord, that you want to speak to us. You want to give us the desires of our heart. You just want to remain in first place while you're doing all that. So Lord, as you've blessed us with maybe wealth or whatever gifts you have imparted to us, uh, help us remember who to give the glory to. And if you give us a warning, Lord, help us be smart enough to heed it. And so I just pray you bless your people as we go out tonight. Lord, I pray for the book of Proverbs as we dive into it, that we would grow, that as you said, we were to add to our faith wisdom. We pray that you would add to our faith, wisdom, and knowledge. 
Lord, just bless your people as we fellowship now and, and call it an evening. Go before us the rest of this day and the rest of this night. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.